Good morning. The Lord be with you. I want to dive right into our story this morning while that text that Julie just read us is fresh in our minds. Let's picture the scene. Jesus is about 30. Uh, He's grown up quietly in some pretty backwoods towns, but now it's time for him to start a public life of teaching and preaching and healing and ultimately revealing himself to be the Son of God. He has a cousin. His cousin's name is John. We know him as John the Baptist, and John is a pretty unusual guy. He's, uh, he's sort of a pioneer in facial hair. Uh, it's setting the trend for today. He's, uh, he's the one who came up with the ho- uh, locust and honey diet. Uh, he's an unusual guy, and in those days, if you were charismatic and a good teacher, you could develop a following, a group of guys that followed around with you trying to learn from you, and and you called those guys disciples. Uh, John had a bunch of these disciples, and he started telling them that his cousin Jesus was actually much greater than he was, which was very unusual because these little bands of teachers and disciples would be kind of competitive with each other. So this was unusual. John started saying to his disciples, no, 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 it's not about me. It's about my cousin, Jesus. So in this scene in John 1, uh, John the Baptist is standing by the River Jordan, and he's got two of his own disciples standing with him. And then we hear this passage that that Julie just read for us. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned around when he saw them following, and he said to them, what do you want? Or in this translation, what are you looking for? So press pause for a second, and imagine for a minute that you are one of those two disciples. You make your living catching fish, but every spare moment you have, you spend following John around because you're on this quest. You have this hunger inside. You have this burning. You want to know the truth. So you take care of work. You take care of family. But every spare moment you have, you're following John around because he seems to be on to something. You're trying to learn from him. And this particular day, you're standing on the banks of the Jordan River on a sunny afternoon, sweating, the weather is quite different in this scene than it is outside. You're, you're sweating in the Middle Eastern sun. Maybe you're kind of parched. But you're watching John preach and baptize people, and you're looking, and you're watching. And then John's cousin Jesus walks by, and John points him out and says, he's the one. He's what you've been looking for. Don't follow me. Follow him. So how do you feel in that moment? Your heart maybe starts to pound a bit, the muscles in your stomach clench a bit, and you catch the eye of your closest friend, the other disciple standing with you, and instinctively, like you don't even have to say anything to each other, you just start walking after Jesus. And you don't really have a game plan. You just know that your whole life you've been looking for something, and you have this sense that maybe he's it. So you're shadowing Jesus. Now, if we step out of the scene for a minute, have you ever shadowed someone, maybe you saw someone famous or something, and you kind of half hoped that you would see them following, but half hoped that that they wouldn't? This happened to me once in the Vancouver airport. I saw Henrik Sedin at the height of the Sedin's powers, and I I was shadowing him because I wanted to work up the courage to ask him for an autograph, but I was scared, and also there was a really good chance it was Daniel Sedin. And so 
I didn't, which would have been fine too, but I didn't know which name to call out. And so I just kind of shadowed him for a while. I think I was texting my family at home, what do I do? Henrik's here or maybe Daniel? And I had this like mix of excitement and dread shadowing him. Fortunately, he never turned around and said to me, what are you looking for? But let's get back in the scene now. You are, you're following Jesus and you have this mix of excitement and dread. This is the one, you're not really sure what you're doing, but you're just following him. And all of a sudden, he stops walking. He stops walking so abruptly that you and your buddy almost bump into him. And he turns around, and he looks directly at you, and you feel, your, you feel yourself, your face getting hot, and you wonder what he's going to say and what you'll say back. And then he looks you deep in your eyes, and he says to you, what are you looking for? What do you say? Now imagine that Jesus in the flesh walked into PCC this morning and there was a chair next to you and he sat next to you and he kind of put his arm around you and he looked you deep in the eyes and he said, what are you looking for? Why are you here? What are you looking for? Does anything like instantly come to mind that you would say to him, what are you looking for? If it does, pay attention to it, because sometimes it's really hard to know what we're looking for. So if something just bubbled up inside of you right now with that question, what are you looking for? Write it down or make a mental note. Don't lose track of that, because figuring out what we want truly and deeply, figuring out the deepest longings of our heart and then how to find what we want and how to ask for what we want, it's actually one of the big tasks of being a human being on this planet. Jesus says, what are you looking for? To get some context here, we have to remember that Jesus asked a lot of questions when he was here on earth. In fact, some people have gone through and tried to count up, like if you're a spreadsheet kind of person, you'll appreciate this. They've gone through and they've tried to count up how many times Jesus is just documented asking questions in the Gospels. So these are just the ones the Gospel writers wrote down. And they've come up with a number that 307 times in the Gospels, Jesus asks someone a question. In contrast, about 183 times, there's documented cases where someone is asking Jesus a question. And in about 10 or less of those times, he directly answers the question. So let's recap that. 307 documented times of Jesus asking someone a question, 183 documented times of somebody else asking Jesus a question, and less than 10 times when Jesus gives a direct answer to a question. Jesus seems to think questions are really important. And if he thinks they're really important, I think we should think that they're really important. And I think that we should remember that when those questions were recorded in the Gospels, he was asking them of the disciples there, but he's asking them of us here and now. He's with us in his spirit, asking us these same questions, inviting us out of the realm of like abstract, safe ideas and into a real conversation about what's going on inside of our hearts and what that has to do with him. He's asking us to pay attention to what he thinks is, is important. And what's fascinating is out of those 307 questions, the very first question that John documents in his gospel is this one. What are you looking for? What do you want? A question about desires. Why would Jesus start with that question? Aren't there more important questions than what you want? Isn't there a much bigger world we were just helped with the prayers of the people. To, we were reminded that there is so much going on in God's world. Does it matter what we want? 
Why would Jesus start there? Well, for our time together, I want to propose, I think, five reasons why Jesus asks us to pay attention to our own desires, to the longings of our hearts. And the first one is this, because we are shaped by our desires. What we long for, what we love, will shape us into the people we become, the kind of disciples we are, the kind of people we are for other people, the kind of followers of Jesus we are. And our desires will shape us whether we want them to or not. And in fact, our, our desires will shape us whether we're even aware of them or not. Now, you might be thinking, uh, Carolyn, you are making too much of this one question. You're reading too much into it. But I don't think that I am because Jesus has this pattern over and over again in the Gospels of asking people to look deep into their own hearts and pay attention to what they really want. For example, there's at least two instances, Matthew 20, 32 and Matthew 10, 15, where Jesus is, has a blind person in front of him who he could just go boom and heal, but he doesn't. He stops and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Asking them to articulate the desires of their heart, giving them the dignity of, of um, being in charge of their lives or at least being able to express what it is that they want. Or in Matthew 20, 21, when John and James' mom comes to him trying to finagle a good spot for her boys in the kingdom, he says, what is it that you want? It's this pattern over and over again. What, pay attention to your heart. What are you asking me for here? What are the desires of your heart? John 20, 15, now Jesus has risen from the dead. There's a heartbroken Mary Magdalene there. And uh, she sees Jesus but does not recognize yet that it is the risen Jesus. And instead of going, ta-da, which is what I would do if I had just risen from the dead, he says, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Jesus seems to pay very special attention to the desires of people's hearts, and he seems to believe that it's important for them to be able to identify their own longings. And I think that's because he understands we are shaped by our longings. I don't know if any of you have come across a book by James K. Smith. It's a fairly recent book called You Are What You Love. And in this book, he argues that we think of ourselves as thinking things. Whatever I think I want is what I'll do. But really, we're loving things before we're thinking things. Whatever I actually love is what's going to shape me. Again, whether I'm aware of it or not. I think here he's kind of influenced by Augustine, the early church father, who said, if you want to live a beautiful life in relationship with God, pay attention to what you love and the order of your loves. That life with God for it to be a beautiful life is about loving the right things in the right order to the right extent. And this, I think, is why there is sometimes a gap between what we believe and how we behave. I, I, might, I might think that it's a really good idea to spend time in Scripture. But if every time I open up my digital Bible, I end up on Instagram, I might find out that I love social acceptance and connection and approval that that love is stronger than my thought that I should study scripture. It's a silly example, but hopefully you get what I mean, that we are shaped by what we actually love. And lots of us walk around not even knowing what we actually love. So I think this is why Jesus asks us to pay attention. It's why in Matthew he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. This question, what are you looking for, helps us pay attention to where our heart is and where our treasure is.
And this leads us to the second reason, I think, that Jesus keeps asking us to pay attention to the, own, the longings of our own hearts. And that's this, that honesty about our own desires will move us from a place of self-deception gradually to a place of self-awareness. Because here's the thing, to be blind to our desires is to be blind to ourselves. Now, I bet some of you are thinking, well, that is quite all right. It's quite all right if I'm blind to myself. Myself doesn't matter. It's God who matters. It's other people who matter. He must increase, and I must decrease. And to you, I say amen, except for here's the thing. <laughs> when you're self-deceived, when you don't understand the, own, the tangle of motives and longings and desires and conflicting movements of your own heart, when you're self-deceived, it's very hard to give yourself away. So strangely, on the journey to becoming self-forgetful and self-giving uh, is this journey to self-awareness, to start understanding in the light of God's love what's going on inside of yourself. So to be blind to our desires is to be blind to ourselves. But what makes this tricky is that our relationship, most of us, with desire is really complicated. And there's different camps that we can fall into in here. Some of you might be in one camp, some of you might be in another camp, and then some of you like me might kind of bounce around <laughs> between camps. In one camp, aware that we are fallen creatures, we assume that we can't trust any of our desires. It's all bad. And actually, even to want something at all is bad. That's one camp. We don't trust our desire at all. In another camp are people that over-trust their desires or are ruled by their desires, whether they're good desires or bad desires, and so they just go after what they want all the time and leave a trail of wreckage wherever they go. That's not helpful either. Many of us have been taught that paying attention to our desires at all is just kind of navel-gazing and narcissistic, and when we believe that, then our desires go underground. And they rule us without us even knowing what's going on. Some of us are shut down by fear. We can't articulate our desires to God because of one, or two, one of two bad possible scenarios. Bad scenario number one is I might discover that I want, what I really want isn't good for me or for someone else, so I can't have it. And bad scenario number two is I could name what I want, it could be good, and I still might not get it. And then how, well, how do I make sense of that in my relationship with God? And so for all these reasons, many of us keep the longings of our hearts subverted, or we keep settling for inferior substitutes, or we self-medicate, and we often walk around with no idea what our hearts are trying to tell us about who we are and who God has made us to be. So how do we figure out what we want? I always like to suggest something practical that you can try. And here's a practice I want to pitch to you for some someday this week. Someday this week, I want you to sit down and write your own obituary. Really, a, really a fun uh, activity. But seriously, uh, imagine that you've died and it's time to write the obituary notice. Write the obituary notice, not the one that you think that you might get if you were to die today. Write the obituary notice of your dreams. What would absolutely thrill you to have said in your obituary notice? And as you're writing that down, you might be discovering uh, some of the deepest desires of your heart. Now I'm going to ask Spencer to come up with me. We're going to sing. Do you guys remember my friend Spencer Capier? 
He's, thanks for coming, Spence. Um, we're going to sing a song. This, this idea of sitting down and writing your obituary, thinking about what you would most, what would be the wildest desires of your heart, of what people would say about you when you die. This uh, seems like a quirky exercise, but it can be really clarifying. And in a way, Christians have actually been practicing this uh, exercise for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because uh, in, in monasteries, kind of in the Middle Ages, when one monk passed another monk, instead of saying, hey, how you doing? He would say, momento more, which means remember your death. Next greeting time, I think we should say that to each other. What do you think? <laughs> Remember your death, memento mori. But what they were saying was, like, live with the end in view, and it will help you figure out what matters most and what you most long for in your life with God and other people and with yourself. So I, I had a dream about this practice once, and uh, I, we're going to sing a song to you about it. We'll put the words up uh, just so that you can kind of reflect on it and follow on. Last night I dreamed that I was dead When the eulogy was read All my friends and family said She really tried her best I guess it was how she was wired To work so hard and be so tired Maybe now that she's expired, she'll finally get some rest. And then a monk walked in my room and started laughing. And that's when the whole thing turned into Latin. Memento mori. Remember. story you want to tell mental morning you only get one life so don't be sorry just live it Oh, 
So there's this invitation. I really do want you to try that practice. I hope you will. Writing your own obituary, paying attention to what it is you really want, naming the desires of your heart, allowing Jesus to invite you into this journey moving from self-deception to self-awareness. And as you do that, you'll discover, I think, the third reason why Jesus keeps asking people in the Gospels and asking us about the longings and desires of our own hearts. And it's this, because honesty about our own desires deepens our relationship with God. By telling Jesus what we long for, we create access to our hearts and our minds and we deepen our relationship with Jesus. If you were here last week, you'll remember we, we talked about God asking Elijah in the Old Testament a very similar question when Elijah was sulking in a cave, when he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And we noticed that God was asking a question that he knew the answer to. So he wasn't looking for information. He was looking for access, for intimacy with Elijah. He was inviting Elijah on a journey uh, to pay attention to what was in his heart in the light of God's love. You see this even on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that great story? Once again, we have the resurrected Jesus walking with a couple people who don't recognize him. And when they're depressed and discussing these terrible things that have happened around the crucifixion of Jesus, again, Jesus, instead of going, ta-da, it's me, he says, what are you talking about? 
What are you discussing? What things have gone on? Getting them to name and articulate their doubts and their, and their longings. If, if you're having trouble trusting any of this that I'm saying and thinking, nah, this just sounds kind of self-helpy. I want to give you an, uh, an analogy from my friend uh, Trevor Hudson. He says, imagine a couple getting married. They have written their own vows for the wedding service. And the groom says to his bride, you are my heart's delight and I love you with all of my being. However, you must understand that from this moment on, you must not expect me to have the slightest interest in your wants and desires. Henceforth, until death do us part, your happiness consists in you submitting yourself to my will with total dedication and with no thought for your own. How do you think the bride will respond? <laughs> would that be a good wedding? Not very well, I think. But many people believe that God is just like this bridegroom that he doesn't care about our desires, that he just wants to see them sublimated as quickly as possible. And yet our gospel story reveals a very different picture of God. When Jesus asked the disciples what they were looking for, his, his question demonstrated once and for all that God is concerned and interested in our desires. Clearly, God does not want us to ignore our longings or to push them aside or to put them to death. Indeed, the exact opposite is true. God wants us to listen to the desires of our hearts, to befriend them, to understand them, and, and then ask for what we want and need. Whatever our longings may be, God is really interested. Does that ring true for you? Of course, now, and this is what needs to be said, right? God's interest in our longings does not mean he will just give us whatever we ask, no matter what those longings are. Those of you who are parents, you know you're very interested in knowing the desires of your child's heart, but you cannot always grant them uh, in the best interest of the child. But the thing is, if we can bring our, these desires to God, he is very interested in them, and he can help us sort the good from the bad. And so this brings us to the fourth reason why I think Jesus is so focused on asking us about the desires of our heart, because it's problematic desires that are revealed that can be healed. So we said earlier that our longings shape us whether we want them to or not. This means that if we wish to become good, healthy, whole people, then when we find ourselves desiring something that is not good for either ourselves or for other people or for God's kingdom, it will not work long-term to just keep ignoring and pushing down that desire. The desire must be healed and transformed. But it's only when we pull it out into the light of Jesus' love that that healing can begin. This is like if you have a wound, it has to be exposed to air and light to heal. It's the same way with these longings. So think of Psalm 139. Think of, of David, who's such an amazing, King David, who's such an amazing case study in desire. On the one hand, he's a man after God's own heart. The deepest longing of his heart is to be after God. But on the other hand, sometimes other desires overtake him, counterfeit desires, desires run amok, and he does terrible things that leave terrible wreckage. And so you find him in Psalm 139 saying, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. It's like, help me sift through these desires and get to the true and beautiful and good ones. I can only do it with you. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way in everlasting. David is a man who understands that problematic desires can only be healed when they're exposed to God's light and love. 
and that we might actually need God to reveal them to us for us to even know that they're there. All right, one more reason, I think, why Jesus wants us to pay attention to our desires. And that's because our deepest desires are like radar. (laughs) They're like homing devices. They'll help get us home. He honors and values our, our desires, and so should we, because they're hints to what we're made for and who we're made for. So I love what Ruth Haley Barton says. She says, our desires are so complicated and our relationship with our longings is so complicated, but what you do is you find a thread, you find a thread of a longing that you have and you start pulling on that thread in the company of God and you see if it can get you to the deepest and truest desires of your heart. And uh, let's look at this from a couple of angles. Uh, One case study might be when you're trying to figure out your calling, your vocation, what to do next with your life in terms of work or ministry. Asking yourself, what do I want, is an important part of that process. Many of us say, what does the world need? What does my family need? What will make the most money? But this question of what do I want is really important. And I think Frederick Buechner is really helpful on this. He says, there are all kinds of different voices calling you to all different kinds of work. And the problem is to find out which is the voice of God rather than the voice of society, say, or the superego or self-interest. By and large, a good rule for finding out is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you need most to do, so that's paying attention to the desires of your heart, and B, that the world needs most to have done. That's discerning with the Lord what the world around you needs. So, for example, if you really get a kick out of your work, you've presumably met requirement A, the work that you most need to do. But if your work is writing TV deodorant commercials, the chances are you've missed requirement B. This is Frederick Buechner, not me, if you happen to write TV deodorant commercials. On the other hand, if your work is being a doctor in a leper colony, you've probably met requirement B, but if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you have not only bypassed A, but probably aren't helping your patients much either. Neither the hair shirt nor the soft birth will do. The place where God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness, the longings of your heart, and the world's deep hunger meet. You know, I don't know Matthew Campbell very well, Pastor Matt, but when I watch him talk about his work with the community kitchen and the way our community is being transformed, I think, I think that, I think I'm seeing this. He's followed the desires of his heart in discernment with God, and those things have come together in this beautiful way. So our desires can be homing devices for figuring out what we're supposed to do in the world. But even more importantly, if we pull our threads on, uh, pull on the threads of our desire in the company of Jesus, I think ultimately and always they will lead us back to him. There's this, this quote that is often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but I don't think Chesterton said it. It's a rough quote, but it says, the man knocking on the door of a brothel is ultimately looking for God. That desire, that sublimated desire has been twisted and counterfeited, but ultimately, deep down, we're all looking for God. And so if we pay attention to those desires in the company of Jesus, we will find they always lead back to him. 
Jesus told us to pay attention to what we want because he knew that if we dug deep down, we would discover a desire to belong and a desire to matter and a desire for wholeness and a desire for connection that would, if we pay it careful and honest attention, always lead us to life in him. So if we zoom back to our story in John 1, when Jesus said, what do you want? What are you looking for? The disciples, now, you probably have picked up that one of the reasons why Jesus asked so many questions uh, was that he was a rabbi teacher, and that is a rabbi teaching method. And the disciples, uh, being good Jewish disciples, they answer his question with a question. (laughs) They say, where are you staying? But really, it's a coy way of saying, we want to be with you. That's the longing of our hearts. We want to be with you. And when they could articulate that desire, Jesus said, okay, come. Come and see. One of those guys was Andrew. He signed up that day to follow Jesus. He signed up his brother Peter the next day. The other one isn't named, but we're pretty sure it was the Apostle John who's writing the story. And I think the longing of their hearts was not so different from the longing of ours. And when they were able to articulate it and follow it, it led them into the company of Jesus. Our deepest longings, the sense that we are incomplete, are really some of the best evidence we have that we are made for more. Frederick Buechner again, we experience all the horrors that go on around us as horrors rather than as just the way the cookie crumbles because in our innermost hearts we belong to holiness, which they are a tragic departure from. So pay attention to the longings of your heart. They'll lead you to your place in the world and they'll lead you to Jesus. If you let Jesus ask you, what are you looking for? I'm gonna sing us a song as we reflect on that. the stars in the cookie jar both were out of reach and later on in my high school it seemed to me a little cruel how the right words to say always seemed to stay just out of reach well I should not have thought it strange that growing causes growing pains cause the
forget Dressed up in my Sunday best Trying not to squirm and to maybe learn Better what the preacher Later lying in the dark I felt a stirring in my heart And though I longed to see what could not be seen I still believed I guess I shouldn't think it on Until we see the face of God The yearning deep within us Tells us there's more to come So when we taste of the divine It leaves us hungry every time But one more taste of what awaits the stars in the cookie jar both were out of reach let's pray father son and holy spirit honestly it kind of blows our minds away that in you everything lives and moves and has its being you are the bigger than we can possibly imagine and you at the same time care about what's going on in our individual hearts, that you actually care about the longings of our hearts. Help us to answer your question honestly. What are you looking for? And those things that we're looking for that will only hurt ourselves and others, will you redeem and transform them, show them to us so that we know they're there, and then pull them out into your light and love, heal them. And those things that you've baked right into us that tell us who we are and what we're made for, help us see them. Light them up for us. Help us follow them deeper into your kingdom. Thank you for your love for us. We're going to enter it even more deeply now, Jesus, as we let our longings lead us to your table. We pray this in your name, Jesus, through the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen.